0: Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit KindredChurchReno.com. Good morning! Uh, So, Mike and I were laughing. I was I was laughing, slightly annoyed um, at the passage that was assigned to me this week. Um, you're going to know why in a minute. We're going to be in Galatians 4, verse 21 through 31. If you've got an electronic Bible or if you want to, uh, I think Liz is going to throw it up on the... Screen there, so you can follow along with us. I'm in the NRSV, which I oscillate between that and the NIV, depending on what I'm studying. Uh, The NRSV is a little bit more of a literal translation, I think, is a little more faithful to the actual meanings of the words in the Greek. So today we're going to be in uh, Galatians 4:21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be subject to the law, will you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by an enslaved woman, and the other by a free woman. One, the child of the enslaved woman, was born according to the flesh. And the other, the child of the free woman, was born through the promise. Now, this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One woman, in fact, is Hagar from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the other woman corresponds to the Jerusalem above. She is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, you childless one! You who bear no children, burst into song and shout, you who endure no birth pangs, for the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than the children of the one who is married. Now you, my brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, like Isaac, but just as at the time the child who was born according to the flesh persecuted the child who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also." But what does the scripture say? Drive out the enslaved woman and her child, for the child of the enslaved woman will not share in the inheritance with the child of the free woman. So then, brothers and sisters, we are children, not of an enslaved woman, but of the free woman. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, it's so funny. I was reading some of my favorite commentators, some of my favorite biblical scholars, and you know they don't come out right out and say it, but all of them allude to the fact that this is gnarly. This is thick. It's hard to understand exactly what Paul's point is. If you get it in context with the rest of Galatians, it seems kind of connected, kind of out of left field. But here we go. So, if you haven't been here for a while during this series and would like a refresher, let's just recap Galatians so far, real quickly. Uh, Paul is the author of the letter to the church in Galatia. Uh, So, this is a young church that he had set up previously, and he is writing them a letter because he is heard that they have had a group of people visit them and insist that they need to um, circumcise the males, observe the festivals and the food laws and the Sabbath and all of these things. And... um so that is the reason for Paul's letter. He, re- he reiterates that the gospel that he preached to them initially was not given to him by any person. Like he didn't get it from Peter. He didn't get it from any of the other apostles. He hadn't been to Jerusalem uh, prior to when he started preaching the gospel of Jesus. So he did not receive this gospel by any person, any people. Then he describes some unpleasantness with Peter and Antioch. And then right in the middle of chapter three, he digs into one of the most robust theological concepts in the New Testament, The Doctrine of Justification. As we have already read, my assigned passage for this week is chapter 4, verse 21-31, to but as Paul dabbles in and out of this topic within various arguments, and in light of the fact that my passage is what it is, we're going to jump around a little bit. And I thought it worthwhile to spend some time uh, on various issues. So I think there are some terms and some concepts that we should visit and explore, and then at the very end of our time together, we're going to read that passage again and see if any of that helps. It may not. Um, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, but we're just going to kind of get into some, some issues, some topics, some themes, and, um, see if we can clarify some things. My vision for this, for this teaching today, um, stems back from like the first time that I was introduced to a different way of reading Paul. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, so we're going to kick off this short discussion today on a couple of topics, and I think it's important to For our own sake, understand and acknowledge where our brains go when certain topics come up. So to to kick off this uh, dialogical discussion today, what are your knee-jerk reactions? What is your instinct answer when I ask you what is justification and what is biblical righteousness? What do those terms mean to you? So give me your definitions for one or for both. It's righteousness and justification. What comes to mind? Awesome. Thank you for those answers. So in full disclosure, I'm going to be working off of an alignment with N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite authors and biblical scholars, and his take on the new perspective on Paul, um, specifically, obviously, righteousness and justification. Um, we don't have time to get into all the details of what comes with the new perspective on Paul. It's amazing. It changed the way I read the Bible. So if you have any questions or would like a book recommendation, I'd be happy to, to do that. Find me after. Um so I'll have to say I'm not going to spend a bunch of time or any real time defending those positions. I'm just going to kind of tell you what he says because I, I think it's good. Um, but I assure you they're valid and well-argued uh, positions. So I get into this later, but I said I would tell you now. So when I think of righteousness, I think of like sinlessness, right? So you think of uh, the way I was taught was, was Jesus had righteousness because of his perfect life. He lived a sinless life that gave him righteousness before God. And then, you know, the Reformed theology would say that you need that righteousness imputed to you from Jesus as a gift of grace so that you can stand before God sinless and cloaked in Jesus's righteousness. Yeah, is anybody else tracking with that? Is that, somebody's heard that before? Um, And then, uh, yeah, so we'll start with that. N.T. writes, he's biblical righteousness as an individual or God acting rightly or faithfully, specifically in the context most often of covenant, right? So when God is faithfully honoring his covenants, his promises to his people, uh, specifically in the Old Testament with Israel, he is displaying his righteousness. So this is in contrast, this is what I just kind of just said, this is in contrast the way I was taught to understand righteousness, that it is holiness, moral virtue, or an absence of sin, Um, the reformed camp would say that Jesus' life earned for himself righteousness and that it was imputed to the believer for justification. Uh, But according to N.T. Wright, he's not buying, and he's got really good arguments for why he does that. Like I said, we don't have time to get into that, but um, really good arguments for why that just doesn't hold up biblically. So if we see righteousness as being, acting rightly or faithfully in the context of a covenant, and we read in Galatians 3, we see Paul's argument That Abraham, quoting God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Um, The NRSV uses reckoned. Some translations will say credited as righteousness. And this is one of his main arguments that that word has been translated incorrectly because of a predisposition to have the text say what it doesn't necessarily say. So his, his, uh, position and the NRSV's position is to, is to, uh, translate that word as reckoned as righteousness. Um, according to N.T. Wright, both Abraham and God each were displaying their own righteousness in this moment. Abraham had his own righteousness by his right standing within the covenant and God by having an unswerving commitment to that covenant, both were displaying righteousness. So Abraham's having faith that God would uh, be faithful to his promises, gave Abraham righteousness because he was having a correct standing within that covenant with God. So it's kind of a complicated uh, concept. So I understand why it's been skewed over the years because it's not the easiest way to think about it. Um, So righteousness is more about right versus wrong than varying levels of moral virtuousness. In Galatians three ten through 14, we read, "...for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is reckoned as righteous before God by the law. For the one who is righteous will live by faith." But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. So if you read that section in light of N.T. Wright's view of righteousness, you can see that, that the law was never meant to give anyone righteousness. Least of all, us, or Jesus. What gives us righteousness is faithfully following God and believing his covenants and meeting with him and saying, I believe what you told me. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to pursue a relationship with you. I'm going to do what you ask me because you are the source of life and truth. You made a covenant with me. You're the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. Where else am I going to go? whatever you say, whatever covenant you establish, I'm going to meet with you in that. And that is where humanity gets its righteousness. So now we understand that the virtuous and successful obedience of the law was never going to reckon anyone with any righteousness. There was a stretch of time, quite a lot of it actually, where a right standing in God's covenant included following the commandments. God said, follow my commandments, love me and follow my commandments. Here's the law. The law was initially an act of grace. It connected humanity, specifically Israel, with God. Um, now, <clears throat> uh, but the total success or failure of obeying it perfectly was never the formula for attaining reckoned righteousness for Israel. So we understand now what Paul meant when he discussed righteousness, and maybe more importantly, what he didn't mean. So let's move on to justification. The simplest way to discuss this, along with righteousness, And they definitely are peanut butter and jelly, is with a metaphor of a law court. There's a ton of law court language in the Old Testament. Um, N.T. Wright does a ton of this work in his book, Justification. Uh, in the, in this law court, obviously, God is the judge and humanity stands condemned. We are in good, if we are in good standing within God's covenant, of which the only current requirement now is faith, trust, and allegiance to Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. Then we will be declared by God to be righteous and fully acquitted. Once we have that declaration of righteousness, we are declared righteous before God. That status is what is required, is the required designation to be justified or fully reconciled to God for eternity and share in his inheritance. The entire story of the Bible is one continuous narrative highlighting God's relentless pursuit of reconciliation with humanity. Crescendoing with the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth and his ultimate return We need to see this the way paul did As he preached the gospel and led these churches toward a faithful response to god's redemption for them He saw it all through the lens of the hebrew bible and god's covenants with abraham and moses Paul and the early jesus movement in paul's eyes were right smack dab in the middle of that story They were just in the next act The next covenant, which was just a continuation or a new iteration of the original, was ushered in once Jesus rose from the grave and the Holy Spirit was given to the people. So let's read our passage one more time and see if we can more clearly follow Paul's arguments in light of what we just learned. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be subject to the law, will you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by an enslaved woman and one by a free woman. One, the child of the enslaved woman, was born according to the flesh. The other, the child of the free woman, was born through promise. Now this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One woman, in fact, is Hagar from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the other woman corresponds to the Jerusalem above. She is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, you childless one. You who bear no children, burst into song and shout. You who endure no birth pangs, for the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than the children of the one who is married. Now you, my brothers and sisters, are children of the promise like Isaac, but just at that time the child who was born according to the flesh persecuted the child who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the enslaved woman and her child, for the child of the enslaved woman will not share in the inheritance of the child of the free woman. So then, brothers and sisters, we are children, not of an enslaved woman, but of the free woman. Okay, and I'm gonna hesitate to answer this question because I'm not even sure how I would answer it myself. So let's go. Um, Did anything change for you in hearing this passage again after what we talked about with regard to righteousness and justification? Okay, so Paul is saying that we've got, he's, he's bisected Christians into two camps that he's dealing with. So he's got the Judaizers, which is the group of people that came to the church in Galatia and said, Yes, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again and he will come back one day. That in, in cooperation with circumcision and following the food laws and following, you know, the ceremonial Jewish Mosaic laws is what justifies you before God. You need to have both of these things. And Paul's argument is that if you are tacking on the law requirements, to the covenant that Jesus has established, the new iteration, the continuation of God's covenant now in Jesus, because Jesus has fulfilled the law, then you are going to be categorized according to Paul as the children of Hagar. So you're essentially making your own covenant. You're adding things to God's covenant. So if you think about that, Abraham and Sarah were like, we're too old. God God promised us children. I'm a hundred. You're 80 or whatever she was like, it's just not happening. Here's a solution to that. We have to take things into our own hands. We have to make this covenant with God successful. We're the ones responsible for for making sure this promise from God comes to fruition. And and that's kind of what Paul is saying. The Judaizers are doing is that we're taking things into our own hands. We're saying that 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 Jesus coming to fulfill the law, establish a new age and a new covenant in this new world is not enough. We also need to, because he's not here. He left. They're probably panicking, right? He came, he changed everything. He set up a new religion and it's it's taken the world by storm, but he's also left. So we're going to have to figure out some things on our own. I think it might be a good idea if we still circumcise people, you know? So Paul's like, no, 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 no. That is like what Abraham and Sarah did in trying to fulfill God's promises through Hagar. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. You just need to believe, have some faith, realize that God promised these things. We are children of promise, not children of the law, not children of Mount Sinai, the covenant of Mount Sinai. And our righteousness now stems from just having faith that Jesus is going to come back, that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And he is gonna be the one when we're in covenant with him that's gonna justify us before God. Uh, my conclusions of this passage. Paul is telling them to stop. Stop entertaining the teaching of the need to maintain the laws of Moses. Jesus came, and the covenant story has progressed to a point where the ethnic markers of God's elect are no longer needed. God has long desired to create one family of people that follow him, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what he's doing, breaking down the barriers between ethnic Israel and the Gentiles. It's time. It's time for us to be one happy family, one group together. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't make a point and acknowledge that there is a ton of anti-Semitism that comes out of Pauline scripture. So I want to be super careful that we're not doing that, that we're aware of it, that we're aware of the susceptibility of that. Paul is not an anti-Semite. He is not speaking in anti-Semitic rhetoric. He is trying to combine God's people into one family where we're gonna be in the new heavens and the new earth forever together. Um, So I think it's super, it's one of the things I really appreciate the most about my seminary experience so far is the professors are really, really good about saying, okay, we're gonna be a little critical of the Judaizers here and we're gonna be a little critical of the Pharisees, but it's so important to make sure we don't slip into an anti-Semitic culture. So we gotta call that out and, and, and speak about it. Um, so yeah, the groups that are forcing the Torah on Christians are children of the slave women, woman, and should be driven out of our midst. Paul is not messing around here. He is very, very serious about these, um, about these charges that he's placing. Um, so what does it mean to be children of promise? Paul's view of God's purpose is that God, the creator of everything, called Abraham so that through his family he, God, could rescue the world from its plight. That's a quote from N.T. Wright. Paul includes the Galatians as among the descendants promised by Yahweh to Abraham in Genesis 15, whether or not they are circumcised or observe the Sabbath or any other laws. They are justified, they have a right standing before God only by believing the gospel of Jesus and responding to that faith with a life lived to God, a life marked by cruciformity and putting others before oneself because through the children of promise, God's covenant people, he will bless the nations. That's his whole point. He wants to bless the nations. He's gonna create a big family where everybody's flourishing with him forever. God wants to call all people to himself through the power of the Holy Spirit working through them to justify the world We are his workmanship. He's doing this through us. It's important to recognize. We are to bring God's justice to the world. And this is another sermon altogether. But God's justice means to lift up the oppressed and marginalized and to bring them to the center. So for us, kindred church, we are in the family. We are children of the promise. We are Abraham's descendants. What amazing grace to be chosen and loved by God. Let's live into that calling and step into the world as God has called us to serve and love. We have an amazing opportunity to march in the Reno Pride Parade next Saturday, the 23rd. Please consider joining us. I don't have to tell you what the LGBTQ plus community thinks about the Christians of this world. And that should break your heart because God loves them. They too are welcome to be included among the descendants of Abraham. So let's show out and prove it. I love you guys. Uh, I appreciate the time today. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.